0: There was an article recently in um, Fortune magazine. That's what clergymen sit around and read, Fortune magazine. <laughs> Fortune magazine that had um, the top 100 greatest places to work in the country. The greatest places to work. And and so the, as I looked into sort of the their ranking of the 100 greatest places to work, I, I wanted to see what were the criteria by which they decided this is a great place. I mean, what makes... A great place to work, a great place to work. And so Fortune actually hired an outside company. that was like a data analytics company. And this company went through and, and made up these, um, these surveys of like 200 different qualitative points. And then they surveyed employees from all sorts of different com- uh, companies to see which ones were really the ones that the employees loved. And so that's what it was. It was like an employee point of view. What company is a really great company to work for? And for the last two years, the same company took number one, Hilton, which I was kind of surprised. Four hundred and thirty thousand employees, Hilton has. I shocked; I had no idea they were that enormous. This massive company, and what was it that made them so great to work for? And, and the, the employees always, you know, it was always employee sort of benefits that they give. And every year they sort of add more. There's a, another way in which they 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 add more benefits and things like. Um, Paid uh, maternity leave, 12 weeks paid for women at, 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 with the birth of a baby, and four weeks for the fathers of, of newborn babies. They even get four weeks off to new couples who um, adopt children. So, uh, you know, this time off and, and then all the other sort of uh, ancillary benefits that go along with it, you know, um, whatever, hospitalization, insurance, and, and all the other sorts of things that go on with that. The hundred, you know, best companies to work for. And it usually, from the employee's point of view, you know, what's the benefit here? What's, what's so good about working here? The CEO of Hilton said that, that they believed that good and happy employees were more productive. I mean, it was better for the company's bottom line. This is why we do it. It's not just that we want to be nice. It actually works for us, that we better employees are more, or happier employees are more productive. And so all of that sort of goes together. I once worked for a company that gave free coffee. Um, and they always reminded you that they gave free coffee. you know like, hey, don't forget who buys the coffee around here and no, we're having a company picnic this year. We spent way too much on coffee and you know, if somebody if you don't clean up the break room, the free coffee's gonna get. <laughs> it was okay, we get it. You buy the coffee. We understand. Yeah. So some companies really good, others maybe not so much. But you can work for even a good company. And have a horrible boss too, couldn't you? I mean, that sort of would would take away from it, you know. Yeah, you had a great company you worked for, but mm, boss is a real tyrant, you know. That might that kind of take the edge off of it. In fact, the best companies do that. They work at weeding out the bad bosses. I remember this uh, film a few years back. Maybe you see, it saw it too. It was called "Horrible Bosses," and there were these three friends, and each one of them had a horrible boss, and so they kind of conspired to murder each other's bosses. It was a comedy. Um, they, the, the point was, it was. Uh, I thought that was funny. It, 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 it was. A, it was a comedy because they were all good people who worked for bad bosses, and so they couldn't even really be bad people. They couldn't be. The, so they kind of bumbled through this whole conspiracy. It never really did work. Um, but they had these horrible bosses, these people who were who were abusive, and and you've been around them too, right? And if you haven't. Maybe me, me, it's you. <laughs> no joking. Uh, you know there's bad bosses who who are tyrants, who who are abusive and and say cruel things and, and create a hostile environment wherever they go. I had this one boss who was exactly like that. Um, I worked for a grocery store chain when I was you know late teens, early twenties, and and um, and this guy he would never say my name right. He would always call me Borsel. <laughs> you know I tried gently to you know Boisel. I'll settle for Boiseau, whichever you like. Um, but there's a Y, not an R. Borsel. Hey, Borsel, come here. And he never called me my first name, always just Borsel. And one day, I remember the assistant manager says, if any of you call me Borsel, it's over. Uh, and one other day, the assistant manager comes to me and says, why does Mark always call you Borsel? And I'm like, I don't know. And he says to me, you know, he even fills out the schedule, so he has to write your name every week. I know. But that, wasn't, you know, that was the, the least of his uh, annoying things. He was, um, he was much more difficult to work for than just that. The prophet Jeremiah grows up in the home of a clergyman. His dad is a priest. And so he, um, he lives in a, uh, in a sort of posh environment. Uh, it's a time where um, the priests are somewhat wealthy, but the religion in Israel has fallen on very hard times. A lot of the people are starting to worship these gods called Baal. The Baals were um, fertility gods. And so the whole cult of the Baals was wrapped up in fertility practices. And it was very lewd, uh, licentious kind of worship that involved temple prostitutes and and all sorts of things like that. And they were also worshiping another god called Moloch, And Moloch was a god who demanded child sacrifice in order to produce um, uh, adequate rain and, and fertility for the earth. So these two fertility gods, uh, the Baals and, and Moloch, uh, and the, the Moloch god was, it was like the statues that people made were enormous. They would be, you know, uh, several stories high, this big bull like uh, god, and he held this big cauldron that in, in which they would build a really hot fire. And there would be steps leading up to the cauldron and, and parents would literally take their newborn infants up there and drop them in this cauldron and sacrifice their newborn children for the sake of the community. It was a horrible practice it was outlawed by the Bible that you, you shall not you should worship any other God other than, than than Yahweh, the God of Israel, but this practice is particularly deplorable when spoken about. Well, Jeremiah grows up in the, in the home of a clergyman, so he his family worships the right God, but it's at a time when nobody else really is doing this. So he sort of grows up, I think, ostracized from a large part of the community, but he's really not, um, you know chums with with all the all the rest of the fellows. and early in his life um, God calls Jeremiah to become a prophet now the work of a prophet is not uh, I don't think it's well understood in, in a lot of um, people's minds I think most people think of prophets as sort of um, like predictors you know they they're, they're people who who predict the future or or have these um, events that are going and they do that but they do it in a different way. Prophets speak into a historical situation. They see something that is, is wrong and they speak to it. They say this is not consistent with God's call and the covenant that you're supposed to be living under. And So they, they go right after the bad practices of the people and say, look, here's what the Bible says. That you are not living consistent with the Bible. And the prophets are lay people. They're not, they're not ordained clergy. Um, you know, the prophet Amos was a, was a farmer. He says, you know, that he's, a, he's tending fig trees and had to come up here and do this job because God called him to do it. Early in Jeremiah's life, maybe 18, 20 years of age, he has a call by God to become a prophet. Listen to it. You don't have it in the, in the text in front, in the bulletin, but listen from chapter 1. Now, the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah says, saying... And this is God speaking to Jeremiah. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. He's getting a little information, isn't he? <laughs> Jeremiah, I thought all this time I was just sort of living my life. No. I've had a plan for you, Jeremiah. And you're going to be a prophet. You're going to speak for me. You're going to be my voice to to uh, to thrones, to people of power. And Jeremiah responds this way, Um he says, verse, chapter one, verse six, I said, ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I'm only a child. <laughs> I'm not ready for this job. This is not, I, I'm not at all ready. Perhaps you should move on to somebody else, a little more seasoned, you know. Um, I barely have had my driver's license for a couple of years. You know, I, I'm not up to this. But God doesn't let him off the hook. Do not say, the Lord says to me, the Lord said to me, do not say I am only a youth. For to all whom I shall send to you shall go and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them. Do you know when you tell somebody not to be afraid? <laughs> it's when there's something... Of which to be afraid, isn't it? (laughs) You know, uh, your kid's getting on a roller coaster for the first time, and you're like, oh, no, it's fine. It won't. It's not scary at all. Of course it's scary the first time you get on a roller coaster. I remember having that conversation with my oldest son. Oh, no, it's fine. It's perfectly fine. He's like, no, Dad, you're lying to me. No, no, I'm not. It's going to be a lot of fun. You're going to love this. And we got off, and he said, why did you lie to me? That was terrifying. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, why do you tell somebody not to be afraid? Because there's something of which to be afraid. And God says to the prophet Jeremiah, don't be afraid. Go to whomever I send you and say whatever I tell you. And maybe you think, you know, the word of the Lord came to me and told me to go do something. I'd just go do it. Maybe you would. Chapter 20. Now, this also is not in your text, but just listen to this. Now, Pashur the priest, the son of Emmer, was chief officer in the house of the Lord. That's the temple in Jerusalem. And he heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. What things? Jeremiah had one sermon. Doom and destruction is coming to Israel. God is going to send another nation and they are going to lay waste to this land. Nobody wants to hear that message. Nobody wants to hear that sermon. Do you have another one, Jeremiah? No, I have one sermon. This is it. Doom and destruction is coming. I was at a friend's house yesterday and she says to me, Um, hey, have you heard the new Bob Dylan album? I'm like, Bob Dylan has a new album? She said, Yeah. I asked Siri, how old is Bob Dylan? He's 79. I'm like, wow, check out Bob Dylan, writing a new album, 79. I said, Kate, you suppose when I'm 79, I'm gonna have a new sermon? She's like, nope, not at all. <laughs> one sermon, that's it. You got the one sermon. <gasps> Jeremiah has one sermon. Doom, destruction is coming. God is going to judge this nation for its idolatry, for its oppression of the poor, for its systematic um, uh, removal of people from places of of justice. The way that it has failed to live up to the way it should treat widows and orphans. Doom and destruction is coming. And Pashur, the priest, the chief priest, the head clergyman in Jerusalem hears this sermon. He doesn't like it. Then Paschor beat Jeremiah the prophet and put him in stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate in the house of the Lord. He beats him. He has him beaten with rods and put in stocks, you know, with his hands up there and and leaves him there overnight. I thought you said, don't be afraid of these people. I thought you told me that it was okay to preach this message. No, I told you not to be afraid that I would be with you. There's no promise that it's going to be easy, is there? So Jeremiah breaks out in song. When my kids were little, I, I used to always, I still love to listen to the blues. Old stuff, you know, it's really good. B.B. King, Muddy Waters, that sort of stuff. The real gritty kind of, you know, Delta blues music. Um, and even the, the, you know, Clapton and um, the Black Keys from Akron, you know, so, some really good bluesy stuff. My kids would come in the room and I'd, I'd turn it off and I'd, I'd tell them, you have to leave they say, why? You can't really understand this music. This music isn't for you. You know, I had a hard scrabble upbringing. I grew up in the south side of Springfield. I understand this music. You are too soft. Life is too easy. You go along, play. I want to listen to the blues. Jeremiah knows something about singing the blues. Listen to his song. Now, this is in your text. Verse 7. Here's how he begins. Oh, Lord, you deceived me and I was deceived. You are stronger than I and you have prevailed. You tricked me. God, you called me to be your servant and you tricked me. I don't like this job. This is a terrible job. Did you see what happened to me when I preached my latest sermon? The only one you've given me. They beat me and they put me in stocks. He goes on. I have become a laughing stock all the day. Everyone mocks me. Anybody want to sign up to be a prophet? (laughs) This is not a job that people enjoy, right? He's doing something that that God has called him to do. He's being faithful. He's given the one sermon he's been told to preach. And how do the religious people respond? They beat him and throw him in stocks. He knows something about suffering. And, And you know, when you have that job that's really horrible, that one that you really just can't stand, what do you do? You quit right take this job and shove it I'm, I'm out of here I quit you can't fire me I'm already out the door you know this is what we do isn't it we, we storm off Jeremiah tries to whenever I cry out I shout violence and destruction for the Lord the word of the Lord has become a road, approach to me and the derision all day long but if I say verse 9 I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, There is in my heart a burning as fire shut up in my bones. I quit. I'm not doing it anymore. Putting tape across my mouth. I'm no longer going to be your preacher. And what happens to him? He says it's like this fire inside. It's coming out. It's going to burn right through that duct tape. It's coming out. I cannot not say this. God has put in him not only a gift, but but a very you know, explosive vocation. He cannot not say what he's supposed to say. No matter how unpleasant, no matter how people don't like it, he's going to say it and it's coming out. And so he just does it. He finally not only gives up, but he gives in. And then he says towards the end, but the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Oh, this is difficult. It's painful. It's awful. I hate doing this. But God is with me. And he's like a dread warrior. He will fight for me. I may have to suffer. There may be difficulties. But God is on my side. He is going to fight for me. He will deliver me. Um, And then uh, he goes on in verse 11. Therefore my persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. They will be greatly shamed. They will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. Therefore he can say in verse 13. Sing to the Lord. Praise the Lord, for he has delivered the life of the needy from the hands of the evildoers. This is going to be hardship, there's going to be difficulty, but in the end, God will prevail. And as long as I hold on, continue to be faithful. Now, Jeremiah whines. This is not the end of his complaining. He writes two whole books where he does almost nothing but complain to God for all the difficulties he has to go through. But he knows in the end, the Lord will deliver him. I think this has two messages. One to preachers and one to to laity. This is a message in the church, isn't it? This is a this is an in-house kind of discussion that's going on. And the one to the preachers is: be faithful. Preach the text. Even if people don't want to hear it. And sometimes they won't want to hear it. Sometimes they will. It's always so nice. Be a preacher, to stand in the back of the church and say, oh, oh, such a great sermon, what clever jokes you have, and oh my, you're so dashingly handsome, and you know, they go on and on, that's what you have. Um, never. Uh, it's It's nice, it's so affirming. But sometimes you know you've done right, even though you don't get to hear that. Be faithful. And always, I think, you know, that you should want that. That's what what the church should want. That's what all churches should want. Somebody who's faithful to the text, who preaches the, the word God has spoken. He has given us a message. We have it, and we ought to be faithful to it. And so that other side of that coin then is, is for the lady, right, to want to hear a hard word if it's a hard if, if it's a necessary word. Yes, to be affirmed. Yes, to be encouraged. Yes, to be um, to be lifted up. But when necessary, to be confronted. Early on, um, I remember somebody said to me that the job of a, of a rector is to do two things, and that is to comfort the troubled and to trouble the comfortable. <laughs> that we need to have both of those things going on in our lives. That we need to be faithful to the word, and to hear it, and to live according to it. So, poor Jeremiah, he has a great job. But a very demanding boss. (laughs) His boss will not let him off the hook. And he won't let us off the hook either. Because God is demanding. But also good.